You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk songwriter Nicholas Edward Williams. As early as 1717, waves of Scottish and Irish immigrants, mainly lowland farmers, were pouring into North America after centuries of conflict, war, and rising land prices. A majority of them worked around the port in Philadelphia, but they were eventually pushed out and they settled throughout the Appalachian mountain range. By 1790, three million of them would call America home, and a fusion of their shared musical traditions was already forming. Now, of course, there wasn't a radio or recordings during this time period, so musical exchanges were commonly face-to-face encounters. Many folks played musical instruments or they sang for entertainment in their homes and on front porches with family and neighbors. Some of those songs that they brought have lasted hundreds of years, and they still live here in America today. Songs like Bonnie Lasso Fivey, about a romance between a young girl and an enemy captain. Bonnie means beautiful or handsome in Scottish. Lass refers to a lady, and Fivey is a town near Aberdeenshire, Scotland. But I could play, I could get a tune. My brother is out in Australia, he used to play tune. He could manage a tune, you see, with a fiddle tune to do me so do. <laughs> like many folk songs that have lasted hundreds of years, the author is unknown, the lyrics have been changed countless times, and it's been called a variety of names, such as Peggy O, Bonnie Barbara O, and Fenario just to name a few. At some point, the song traveled down to England, where it was known as Handsome Polio, or Pretty Peggy of Derby. And during its migration, the name Fenario began to replace Fivey, so that the rhyme and the rhythm were a better fit. Around 1917, the song was documented for the first time in America, when the founding father of the English folk revival, Cecil Sharp, recorded hundreds of tunes for his songbook, English folk songs from the Southern Appalachians, and he was hoping to find a lineage that traced back to England, which he did. Other variations of the lyrics were found that refer to the War of 1812, as well as the American Civil War. There was a troop of Irish dragoons come marching down through five and the captain's fun in love we a very pretty maid and her name was called pretty peggy and the song went mainstream in america during the folk revival of the 1960s bob dylan had it on his first album in 1962 under the title pretty peggy which was based off of a recording that he'd heard by a scottish traditional musician named john strawn which is what you're hearing right now Judy Collins recorded it as Fenario, with an A, in 1962. Joan Baez sang it in 1963, using the title Fenario, with an E. And Simon and Garfunkel recorded it as Peggio, in 1964. The song has also been recorded by The Grateful Dead, Trampled by Turtles, Jefferson Starship, as well as The National. Here's a rendition of the Scottish traditional, originally called Bonnie Lass O'Fivey, now known in America as Peggy O. (laughs) 
we rode out to Fenerio As we rode out to Fenerio Our captain fell in love with a lady like a dove And he called him by her name, pretty Peggy O Will you marry me, pretty Peggy O Will you marry me, pretty Peggy O Will you marry me, I set your cities free And I'll free all the ladies in the Known as a singing brakeman and widely regarded as the father of country music, 
Jimmy Charles Rogers was born near Meridian, Mississippi in 1897. One of seven children to a mother who had passed away early on in his life, Jimmy was raised by his father, who was a railroad foreman. Before he even turned 13, Jimmy was destined to become an entertainer, and he had successfully organized and started two traveling shows, though he was immediately brought home by his father both times. So likely in an effort to keep him from roaming, Jimmy's father got him a job as a water boy at the tracks. Eventually, he learned to pick and strum from the passing hobos and the rail workers there, and immersed himself in the work chants of the African Americans who were laying and maintaining the tracks. For the next 15 years, he would live and breathe that locomotive life in different areas of the country, both as a brakeman and a switchman, foreshadowing the musical identity that he would become famous for. At just 27, Jimmy was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which jeopardized his rail work, though it afforded him a chance to fuel his passion to become an entertainer. Two years later, in 1927, and now a family of three, he decided to move to Asheville, North Carolina. In that same year, he performed on the radio for the very first time. And it had gone so well that he decided to recruit a group from Bristol, Tennessee to back him for a weekly spot on that same station, billed under the name the Jimmy Rogers Entertainers. And a few months later, word got out that Ralph Peer, a legendary talent scout for the Victor Talking Machine Company, was coming to Bristol and he was holding auditions. These would later be known as the famous Bristol Sessions. Jimmy and his crew got their shot in an empty warehouse, and Peer liked them enough to invite him for a recording session the very next day. And while the group was trying to figure out which song they wanted to play, they had an argument, and fingers were pointed at Jimmy for some guitars that he had sold on consignment from a local music shop, but he never paid them back. The band was officially out. Jimmy was unfazed, and he showed up alone the next morning for the session. After nearly three hours, Sleep Baby Sleep and The Soldier's Sweetheart were cut, two tracks that would earn moderate success, and Jimmy was handed $100 for the test recordings. Now having been paid for the very first time to play music, he was determined more than ever. So later that year, he traveled to New York City to get another recording opportunity with Ralph Peer. And it was at this second session where Jimmy cut a track called Blue Yodel, also known as T for Texas, when fate took flight. The song featured what would become his signature rhythmic yodeling, which he claimed to have picked up after hearing a group of Swiss emissaries outside of a church. It sold nearly half a million copies. All those years in the rail yard proved vital to his career as an entertainer, defining and inspiring that original country blues sound. So from then on, Jimmy decided when Ralph Peer would record him, and wherever he wanted to perform, it would sell out. His life ended early while staying at the Taft Hotel in New York City in 1933 after several days of what would be the last recording sessions of his career. And though his time on earth was short, his legacy is still alive today. In fact, you can draw a line between Jimmy Rogers and Merle Haggard, Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley and Willie Nelson, and from Leonard Skinner to Elton John. 
He's been inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Recorded in 1928 and released in 1929. Here's a version of Jimmy's classic, Waiting for a Train. Granddaughter of freed slaves, Elizabeth, called Libba or Sis Cotton, was born the youngest of five children in 1893 near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She grew up in a musical household, but she was forbidden to play her older brother's banjo. She did it anyway. Around five or six years old, she would sneak in, and by the time she was eight, she could play entire songs. Then I'd put the banjo on the bed with the string broke. He'd come in from work. She's done it again. Then I'd hide behind the door, sometimes sneak up under the bed, anything. Elizabeth was forced out of school when she was nine to become a domestic, which was a houseworker or a maid. 
By the time she turned 11, she'd saved up enough money to buy herself a Stella guitar for $3.75. Now, Elizabeth was left-handed, so to make the guitar and the banjo easier, she just turned them upside down. No matter how many times I look at Elizabeth Cotton playing the guitar, I, I, I never fail to be amazed. It's a regular guitar, but she's playing it left-handed, so her, her thumb plays the high notes and her finger plays the low notes. Her method of picking is now known around the nation among guitar pickers as cotton picking. In her early teens, she was already writing her own songs, one of which, Freight Train, has been her most recognized. She married Frank Cotton when she was 15, and she had one child that she named Lily. Now spending more time with family in the local church community, she was pressured to give up her worldly guitar music, and she did. When Lily grew up and had her own child, Libba and Frank moved to D.C. to be closer to her granddaughter. She got a job working at a department store, and one day she was helping a lost child find their mother. The child was Peggy Seeger, the daughter of American composer Ruth Crawford Seeger and renowned folklorist and teacher Charles Seeger. A month later, she started working as a maid for the famous folk singing Seeger family. A few years passed, and one day Peggy came home to discover that Elizabeth was playing the family's gut-strained guitar. Elizabeth apologized for using the instrument without asking, but Peggy was blown away by what she'd heard. It had been 40 years, and Libba had picked up the instrument again and relearned it nearly from scratch, just as she did in secret as a little girl. Not long after, Peggy's brother Mike started doing reel-to-reel home recordings of Elizabeth, who was now 62 years old, making her debut album. It would end up being titled Freight Train and Other North Carolina Folk Songs, and was released by Smithsonian Folkways in 1958. At the time, there weren't many authentic folk music albums readily available besides this one, and it's considered one of the most influential for guitar players. In addition to her signature cotton-style picking and instrumentals, the album also provided some of the first accessible examples of open tunings used in American folk guitar. Thanks to these recordings and other help from the Seegers, Libba soon found herself giving small concerts in the homes of congressmen and senators, including John F. Kennedy. In the early 1960s, she was invited to join some of the big names that were a part of the blooming folk and blues revival, including Mississippi John Hurt, John Lee Hooker, and Muddy Waters at venues such as the Newport Folk Festival and the Smithsonian Festival of American Folklife. These shows created newfound interest in her songs, which inspired her to write and perform more. So in 1967, she released a record that she had written with her grandchildren, titled after the song Shake Sugary, which is a lullaby about dejected poverty. Now, the origin of the title has been speculated. Some say Shake Sugary was an old saying from the region that meant to have a good time. People would throw sugar on the floor and then dance on it, producing a percussive sound. Others say that it pertains to Chapel Hill's local Native American tribe, the Shikori. There are also claims that sugary is a synonym for cotton, 
or that they're just nonsensical words whose rhyme scheme went well with the previous line, Oh Lordy Me. In the liner notes, Elizabeth gives credit for the album and the song to her grandchildren, who she encouraged to sing the chorus every night, competing for whose verse would make it into the song. Elizabeth Libba Cotton continued to tour and perform right up until the end of her life. Her last concert was one that folk legend Odetta put together for her in New York City in the spring of 1987. She was declared a National Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for the Arts and was later recognized by the Smithsonian Institution as a living treasure. She received a Grammy Award for Best Ethnic Traditional Recording at the age of 90 nearly 80 years after she first began composing her own songs. She passed away in 1987 at the age of 94, near her home in Syracuse, New York. Here's a rendition of Elizabeth Cotton's Shake Sugary. Upon my pipe, 
upon everything that was in my sight. Oh, Lord, in me, what didn't I shake sugary? Everything I got is done in pawn. Upon my farm, upon my plow, upon everything, even my cow. Oh, Lord, in me, didn't I shake the sugary? Everything I got is done in pawn. Everything I got is done in pawn. Now, everything I got. Is it done in pawn? Oh, Lord, it is done in pawn. Born in Brooklyn, New York, to a family that he claims was mostly Irish, despite the Dutch name, Dave Van Ronk came into the world on June 30, 1936. Before he became a folk icon in the Greenwich Village scene, Van Ronk sang with barbershop quartets, and his career as a professional musician actually began by playing banjo in traditional jazz bands. At the time, however, jazz was not very profitable. Dave found better paying gigs by singing blues and folk songs that he learned from old 78s that he found in record stores. And soon he became a regular in Washington Square Park between trips as a merchant seaman, and he gradually developed the following after people saw his lively interpretations of these old songs. Well, you got somebody that you want to kill. Just give him a mirror and a $20 bill. Cocaine. And eventually, Dave managed to capture the interest of professionals in the New York recording industry. And at one point, he was considered for a pop-folk trio with Peter Yarrow. As it turned out, Van Ronk's voice and style was considered too distinct, and the role eventually went to Noel Paul Stuckey, who became the Paul in Peter, Paul, and Mary. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, and like many folk artists of this period, Van Ronk took traditionals and fragments of songs, and he made them his own. For instance, his version of House of the Rising Sun directly influenced both Bob Dylan and the animals. However, he would sit back and watch as they both reached international stardom, partially on the strength of his arrangement. He received no financial compensation or even the smallest credit from either of those artists. For a while, Dave worked at a club on McDougal Street called The Commons in the early 60s. Oftentimes, the headliners were the great beat poets of that generation. Robert Kaufman was one of the most beloved in the scene, and one evening while backstage with Dave and an artist named Len Chandler, a local musician turned folk singer, Kaufman proceeded to utter the words, I have a song for you. He began singing even though he was considered tone deaf, and the words struck a chord with both Dave and Len. 
It was an old popular African-American children's game song that was sung throughout the South, specifically around New Orleans, where Kaufman grew up. The children form a circle with the leader in the center. The group sings Green Green, and the leader answers Rocky Road, skipping around the ring. As the chorus is sung, the leader is deciding which person to choose. When they pick one, the group sings the first line of the verse, naming the child selected. The leader brings them to the center and kisses them. Both Dave and Len decided to record Green Green Rocky Road. Dave framed his version off of Len's melody and new verses, and it became one of the most enduring and requested songs throughout Dave's career. Dave Van Ronk did not set out to be an influential folk musician, but he became one of the most iconic figures in the 1960s folk revival. It was not just his musicianship that afforded him friends like Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and Joni Mitchell, but his personality. He had a large physical stature, unkept appearance, he was intellectual, and he was outgoing. Van Ronk earned his nickname the mayor of McDougal Street because he was the king of that world. He loved New York. This, of course, would become the title for his memoir, released in 2006. If you didn't already guess it, Dave had quirks, which either made him lovable or a hard pill to swallow. When he moved to Greenwich Village, he never left. He refused for many years to fly, and he never learned to drive. When a BBC reporter told him that they admired him for never selling out, Dave replied, listen, I've been standing on 42nd Street for 20 years, bent over with my pants around my ankles. It's just that nobody's f***ed me. During the 1960s, he supported radical left-wing political causes and was a member of the Libertarian League. He was arrested with 12 other people at the Stonewall Inn in 1969, the night of the now-famous Stonewall Riots, which is widely credited as the start of the gay rights movement. He'd been dining at a neighboring restaurant, saw what was going on, joined in, and was beaten nearly unconscious by police, and later was charged with assault for throwing a heavy object at an officer. He frequently performed with a jug of Tullamore Dew next to him, and he found it amusing to be called a legend in his own time. Over five decades, Dave Von Ronk recorded 30 studio and live albums that blended blues, jazz, folk, jug band stomping, and sea shanties. He's considered one of the most influential guitarists of the 60s. He was a brilliant storyteller, a musical historian, and one of the most quotable people on the village scene. And thanks to the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis, which was based on a fictionalized account of Dave's life, there's been a resurgence of interest in his work. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award from ASCAP in 1997 and a Lifetime Achievement Award by the World Folk Music Association in 2004. Dave gave his last concert just a few months before his death in a New York hospital after having heart failure while undergoing treatment for colon cancer in 2002. Here's a take on Dave's version of Green Green Rocky Road.
go by Baltimore Ain't no carpet on my floor Grab your coat while you follow me I know a man in Galilee And he's hollering green, green Rocky road Oh, and promenade in green Tell me who you love, tell me who you Hollering green, green, rocky road. Oh, I am promenading green. Tell me who you love, tell me who you Howard Welch was born on October 2, 1967, in New York City, and was adopted by Mitzi and Ken Welch, two successful comedy and music entertainers who had once appeared on The Tonight Show. When Gillian was three, the family moved to Los Angeles, where her parents got a gig writing material for The Carol Burnett Show. Gillian's parents got her some old songbooks early on, which she learned to play guitar and sing along with. She became even more familiar with the music of American folk singers such as Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and the Carter family while she was at Westland Elementary School in Los Angeles, 
playing guitar for the group sing-alongs. At Crossroads High School, a local news program featured Gillian as a student who, quote, excelled at everything she did. She was on the all-state track team, running the mile, and was invited to compete in Texas for the national trials, but she decided that it was likely too hot there and felt that cross-country might be more her speed. Gillian attended college at the University of California at Santa Cruz, where she studied photography. Immersed in the art scene and listening to loads of Velvet Underground, she was experimenting with music as well as recreational drugs, like most students do. She played bass in a goth band and drums in a psychedelic surf group. She moved into an apartment with a new roommate, who was a DJ for an old-time bluegrass show. While she was cleaning the bathtub one Sunday morning, he put on a record of the Stanley Brothers, and Gillian had an epiphany. She recounted, The first song came on, and I just stood up, and I kind of walked into the other room as if I was in a tractor beam, and stood there in front of the stereo. It was just as powerful as the electric stuff, and it was songs that I'd grown up singing. All of a sudden, I'd found my music. After graduating from UC Santa Cruz, Gillian had a hard time playing this older music at gigs, mostly due to her shyness and a lack of sound equipment. Then, a 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit San Francisco in 89. Gillian was walking home through familiar streets surrounded by completely unfamiliar buildings. She became distraught when she saw her own bedroom, looking more like a broken spiderweb. She couldn't sleep. Her friends encouraged her to join them for a getaway trip to Wales in the UK where they had an opportunity to house sit, so she went. College graduates in a sleepy, quiet town, you can imagine what ensued. The group had grown restless after a few months and wound up borrowing the car from the woman they were house-sitting for, and they landed in Amsterdam in a cloudy haze. Gillian usually kept her parents in the loop, and they felt the need to have a hard talking too. They asked, what do you want to do with your life? I want to do music, she said. And they told her, if she's going to play music for a living, then she's going to have to go to school for it. So soon after, her parents got her a letter of recommendation from a friend to attend the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, where Gillian would major in songwriting. During her two years at Berkeley, Gillian struggled to find community, and she spent a lot of the time on her own. She was able to overcome her fears of performing, however, because each class required students to play in front of about 20 classmates. Not only that, but fate would intervene while Gillian was auditioning for Berkeley's only country music band when she met her music partner, David Rawlings, who was studying guitar. After finishing at Berkeley in 1992, Gillian was ready to leave Boston. She looked at all of the music that she loved through her record collection. It had all been made in Nashville, Tennessee. So, she decided to follow her idols and leap into the unknown waters of Tennessee, with Rawlings following suit at the end of that summer. From Nashville, Tennessee, comes your Grand Ole Opry. It was there in Nashville that the two realized for the first time just how well their voices fit together after singing Lefty Frizzell's Long Black Veil. On a cold, dark night, a year after moving to Nashville and performing the weekly rounds of songwriter nights at the clubs, Gillian was discovered by Denise Stiff, who was managing Alison Krauss at the time. 
Both Gillian and Stiff were constantly told to lose the guitar player and join a band. To pay rent, Gillian was working a day job at a bed and breakfast, where she made beds and cleaned bathrooms, affording her time to think and work out songs. Eventually, she was signed to a publishing company in 1994, which brought her to the attention of Almo Sounds, with whom she would sign her very first recording contract. Then you won't have to die. I spoke not Then, while the duo was opening for Peter Rowan at the Station Inn, the well-known producer T-Bone Burnett was in the audience, and they caught his ear. Their first record, Revival, was produced by Burnett, who made sure to highlight their approach of minimal instrumentation from their live performances. That record earned a Grammy nomination for Best Contemporary Folk Album. When Universal Music Group purchased Alamo Sounds, Gillian didn't feel like they would support the duo's style. So she started her own independent record label, Acne Records, named after the Appalachian wildflower, Acne Bell. In 2001, she released Time, The Revelator, produced by Rawlings. This record has been widely considered as Welch's signature album, solidifying her place as an artist who has received the torch of the old-time music legends. That record was also nominated by the Grammys for Best Contemporary Folk Album. Don't you call my name. I found they were all While the Grammy nominations granted her acclaim, Gillian was also criticized for writing music that originates in Appalachia and the old-time South because she grew up in Los Angeles and had a leg up from parents who were already successful entertainers. However, most critics wildly praise and defend her, such as music critic Mark Kemp of the New York Times, who wrote, It matters not whether Miss Welch has ever walked the streets of the black dust towns of East Tennessee about which she sings, because the sense of foreboding that she expresses for the men who once labored in coal mines with futile hopes of a better life comes through loud and clear. After two nominations, Gillian finally won the 2002 Grammy Award for Album of the Year due to her work on the soundtrack for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where she served as the associate producer with T-Bone Burnett. She also shared vocals with Alison Krauss on a rendition of the gospel song I'll Fly Away and co-wrote additional lyrics for Didn't Leave Nobody But the Baby, sung by Welch, Emmylou Harris, and Alison Krauss which was derived from an old Mississippi tune that was discovered by Alan Lomax. The movie and its soundtrack has been credited for the current folk music revival that's making waves today. Gillian and David continue to write and perform together today. The duo has been nominated for six Grammys with one win. They've also been nominated by the Country Music Association, the International Bluegrass Music Awards, and the Academy Awards. And they were given the Lifetime Achievement Award for Songwriting by the Americana Music Association in 2015. Everything is Free from the album Time the Revelator has had a second win lately. At the time she wrote the song, Gillian was dealing with the same anxiety that many other recording artists felt 
as peer-to-peer file-sharing programs such as Napster and LimeWire were threatening their careers. The song is being embraced by today's generation of independent artists who see streaming services like Spotify, Google, and Apple Music in a similar way to their predecessors. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Gillian said, It's about feeling like my personal creative independence was threatened. What I realized over the course of writing the song was that the power that I retained was the threat of withholding. I want people to feel the injustice. I want people to feel the robbery, the theft. Here's a rendition of Gillian Welch's Everything is Free. Everything is free now That's what they say Everything I ever done Gonna give it away Someone hit the big score They figured it out That we're gonna do it anyway to make a little change down at the bar or I can get a straight job I've done it before I never mind I'm working hard it's who I'm working for cause everything is free now that's what they say everything I ever done gonna give it away someone hit the big score they figured it out gonna do it anyway even if it doesn't pay Listen to 
them words in my head Someone hit the big score And I figured it out They were gonna do it anyway Even if it doesn't pay say a man is made out of mud a poor man's made out of muscle and blood muscle and blood and skin and bones a mind that's weak and a back that's strong you load six that's it for our first show this episode was brought to you by the community of supporters on patreon if you're interested in becoming a direct supporter of the show please visit patreon.com slash american songcatcher we would love to have you join this independent program other support comes from Paco's Coffee, a small batch roastery based out of Jacksonville Beach, Florida, who buys their beans from farmers and co-ops who are trying to improve their land, empower their employees, and sustainably grow and harvest coffee for everyone to enjoy. This episode's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at Gems on VHS. Founded by musicologist and documentarian Anthony Simpkins, Gems on VHS is an ongoing archive of field recordings, as well as beautifully shot acoustic videos with artists today who honor the sounds of the past with their own authentic twist. If you're unfamiliar, I highly suggest going down the rabbit hole of Gems on VHS YouTube or visiting gemsonvhs.com. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian Folkways for all of their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, the Library of Congress's complete national recording registry, archive.org, and all of the effort that they put into transferring cultural artifacts into digital form, all of the website resources that were used in this episode, which are hyperlinked in the description. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album, our outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, and recorded by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams. In the words of Elizabeth Cotton, I was just glad to get the Grammy. I didn't know what the thing was. It's the honor what I loved. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. <laughs>